This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we cover the opening of the completed portion of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum renovation at the Washington, D.C. location. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 724 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. We had planned to record an episode this week, but things happened and that didn't work out. Instead, we had some interviews in the can, so that's what we have for you. Now, you're probably familiar with the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. In the museum's own words, it is the world's largest and most significant collection of aviation and space artifacts, encompassing all aspects of human flight, as well as related works of art and archival materials. It's typically the most visited museum in the United States, with more than 8 million visitors a year. You might know that the museum has two locations. The original location is in Washington, D.C., and the newer Stephen F. Udvarhazy Center is the Annex, located outside D.C., next to Washington Dulles International Airport in Chantilly, Virginia. That facility was made possible by a $65 million donation by Stephen F. Udvarhazy, a co-founder of the aircraft leasing firm International Lease Finance Corporation, or ILFC. But in this episode, we're talking about the D.C. facility. It was established in 1946 as the National Air Museum, and the main building opened on the National Mall in 1976. Well, in 2018, the museum started a seven-year renovation project. When the renovation is complete, all of the museum's 23 galleries and presentation spaces will be updated or completely redone. On October 14th this year, 2022, the downtown museum reopened with eight new and renovated galleries in the West Wing. Our Hillel Glazier was present, representing the Airplane Geeks podcast, at the press preview day, and he recorded some interviews. Coming up in just a minute, Hillel will set it up, and then you'll hear the opening video. After that, we have the opening remarks from Christopher Brown. Chris is the John and Adrian Mars Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. He joined the museum as Deputy Director in 2017 and served as Acting Director from 2021 to 2022 when he was named Director. Next, Hillel speaks with Dr. Jeremy Kinner, the Associate Director of Research and Curatorial Affairs at the National Air and Space Museum. He leads the museum's three research and curatorial departments. Those are Aeronautics, the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies, or CEPS, and Space History. Kinner also provides counsel and advice on curatorial and museum affairs to the director and the senior leadership team. Finally, we hear from Beth Wilson. She's been an educator at the National Air and Space Museum since 2004. Now, before we get started, just a quick comment. The National Air and Space Museum needs to be on your bucket list. It's one of the great air museums out there, like the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force in Dayton, 
the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, the Museum of Flight in Washington State, and the San Diego Air and Space Museum. There are many other great museums, some of them smaller and more intimate, like my local favorite, the New England Air Museum. But please support these museums and be sure to visit the National Air and Space Museum. Okay, Hillel, take it away. This is Hillel Glazer, innovation and entrepreneurship correspondent for the Airplane Geeks, and I am coming to you from the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian on the National Mall. Today is a preview day for the press and some other special VIPs, I suppose. And only about a third of the renovations have been completed so far. The renovation will continue for another number of years. And we're about to hear from the director of the museum. Let's listen. Here's to anyone who's ever looked up. The airheads. And the space cases. Live long and prosper. The flight fanatics. The armchair astronauts. And the casually curious. Here's to those who know the thrust in Newtons of a Pratt & Whitney J75 turbojet engine. And those who silently ask, what's keeping this thing in the air? Here's to those who can list the name, mission history, and favorite breakfast of every Mercury astronaut. And those who've ever searched for, how does a toilet work in space? Here's to the people who knew a P-38 Lightning from a P-51 Mustang. And the people who thought those were the names of cars. Those captivated by the miracle of flight. And those who are just happy to make their flight. So whatever captures your curiosity. We choose to go to the moon propels you to new heights. When it comes to the sky, there's space for all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Brown, the John Adrian Mars Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. Good morning. I can't tell you how excited and pleased we are to be at this moment and to be able to share this day with you. Uh, this is an early glimpse, you're getting an early glimpse of what we're going to unveil to the American public here a week from tomorrow, um, representing an amazing, incredible amount of work to get to this point. And I'm joined by many colleagues who made that happen, who I'll introduce here momentarily. But one of the things I learned when I came to the museum is that we're really in the business of telling stories, telling people's stories, and how they connect to the artifacts and the technologies we celebrate. And like every story, every good story has a beginning. And the beginning for this building was that it opened in 1976 as a gift to the country funded by the country. And since that time, it has greeted more than 350 million visitors. It's been enormously successful. We know that because people keep telling us that, that this was a place of awe, inspiration, that launched 
uh, careers. Uh, I know for me, I came here in 1977, a year after its opening. I was 19 years old. And the artifact that most resonated with me was the DC-3 hanging up. And from that moment on, I said, I want to be part of that. And so I entered a long career of aviation and many touch points for which I'm incredibly grateful. But we know that this place has that power and has that impact. But after greeting 350 million people, uh, it became pretty worn out. And I think uh, for many of our recent visitors would attest to that. And not only that, since the time the museum opened in 1976, a lot has changed. The, the aviation and aerospace world has changed incredibly, and who's participating in it has changed. It's become a much more diverse and inclusive space that we want to celebrate. So we are taking this opportunity to reimagine what I describe as America's favorite museum. And so that's what we're going to show you today. The galleries, the storytelling, the artifacts that make that all possible. It's a seven-year effort, as I think many of you probably know by now. Again, largely funded by the taxpayers, American citizens, and importantly, our philanthropic supporters, without whom we couldn't complete this incredible effort. So I want to thank them in advance, and then once again, this is a gift to the very people who, who have made it possible. You know, we one of, part of our mission is to commemorate and celebrate the past. And so whether it's the Wright Flyer, the Spirit of St. Louis, the Apollo 11 capsule, these are all impactful, iconic objects that celebrate incredible turning points in, in this nation's history, and we will always celebrate that. But it's also a place of learning and a place of inspiration, as I just described. And so how do we build on that past success? Well, we continue to collect and grow the collection and expand the storytelling, such that almost half of the artifacts that you will see today are in the building for the first time, including the T-38 above me. We wanted to introduce that aircraft, not just because it's an incredibly iconic aircraft, self, uh, a supersonic trainer used by uh, militaries and agencies around the world. But that aircraft is particularly special because Jackie Cochran, the first woman to break the sound barrier, went on to set eight speed and altitude records with that aircraft. And in point of fact, when she died, she had more records than any man alive. That's an important story. That's a connection point, perhaps for a young girl coming into this museum for the first time. Because if seeing is believing, we want our visitors, particularly our younger visitors, to see themselves in the stories, the possibilities, how they can connect, and how they can start a lifetime of learning, just as I did when I first saw that DC-3. So that's very much a part of what we hope to achieve today and share it with you. But our real measure of success, I think, will be when our visitors come and exit, when they leave, they will recommend, they will urge to their friends, their families, their loved ones, you must go see the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum on the National Wall. Must see it. But more importantly, that measure of success that I really hope to achieve, and I know my colleagues join me, is that learners, 
whatever their age, particularly young, young learners, however they come to us, however they present, whatever they look like, wherever they come from, whoever they are, that at certain points in this collection, in the storytelling, they can connect at a personal level and get that moment of awe and inspiration that we know can lead to amazing things. Learning is certainly the, the, the pinnacle, the, the, the main part of what we try to do, but we're also very cognizant of the visitor experience. We want visitors to come here and enjoy their time here, and that's why we've now got a launch pad, which I hope you'll, you'll visit, uh, that includes a new Mars-based, a cafe-based after a, a Mars with a Mars theme, first time in the museum. We have a suite of family care rooms for moms with nursing kids and others, kids that may need a timeout. We want to make sure that we meet visitors where they are and what their needs are. We're also introducing into the building for the first time classrooms. So we hope you'll, you'll take uh, the opportunity to tour the entire uh, phase that is open. Recall, this is a two-phase project. What you're going to see today are eight galleries, essentially. Uh, and when this project is complete in its entirety, several years from now, there'll be 23 all-new, transformed, and reimagined galleries. So you're getting an early glimpse of what we plan to share with the American public here in just a few days. But I could not do this, and we could not offer this, without the incredible efforts of so many people, um, not the least the curatorial team to my right, the scientists, the researchers, the scholars, who really not only collect and build out the national collection, but bring it to life through storytelling that will resonate with our audience. Also joined by our communications team, uh, you can find some of us with this Ask Me button, and you'll, you'll be able to uh, ask any of us, and we'd, we'd love to be able to engage with you because we have a lot to celebrate. We're incredibly proud of it. A visit in the morning would not be complete without a cup of coffee, so do take advantage of the coffee uh, downstairs at the Mars Cafe. I will say we're the first Smithsonian property to offer bird-friendly coffee. And I thought that was particularly appropriate in a place that celebrates aviation. But uh, do, do, uh, do wander, uh, take pictures, share what you see, ask us for uh, anything uh, that we can help you with. We also have a, a new planetarium. Um, in fact, the Zeiss projector there that was previously is now an artifact at our Uvarhausi Center near Dallas Airport. There will be trailers, brief two-minute trailers shown every 15 minutes starting at 9.15. I urge you to stick your head in there to see what, we, what the possibilities are uh, with that new facility planetary. So I've gone on long enough. I know you came here not to hear from me, but to hear from the experts and, hear, and witness the incredible work uh, which we will unveil to the American public and indeed the world a week from tomorrow. Thank you. I'm here with Dr. Jeremy Kinney. He is the Associate Director of Research and Curatorial Affairs, otherwise known as the Chief Curator. And uh, what I wanted to understand, and what I think some of our people in our audience like to understand is, 
the renovations that are undergoing today are about, you know, the phase is one phase one or first phase, earlier phases are complete. But this has been taking place on paper for a long time, perhaps, you know, a number of years. And you have to start thinking about what it's going to be like in 20 years from now. You don't want to redo this in 2040. So how do you think through and prepare the museum to withstand all the changes that are going to be happening over the next 20, 30, 40 years. I was here the week it opened in 1976. Um, and so obviously, and I am an aerospace engineer and a pilot. And so this is very much the place that I got my start in. So it's first, let's hear a little bit more about you and then get into the museum. Okay, well, I'm Jeremy Kenny, and I've been a curator uh, for the museum for over 20 years before coming to my current position. And I come from a background of history. I've always been fascinated with aviation history, space history. I went to graduate school to be a, a history professor, and I ended up being a, a museum curator at the Smithsonian. So I've been very lucky and have a very uh, long and fruitful and fun career. And so when we had this opportunity for transformation, you had to look at these 23 new exhibition spaces, we did think about the future. And how do we, you know, one thing that museums can't always do well is what's the present and future and how do you incorporate that as it becomes the past? And so we've embedded in each of our exhibitions the flexibility to be able to tell stories as they come up as well as to change the spaces. We might not necessarily change you know, a hanging artifact, but we can change panels and labels and have videos and other interactives that reflect the, the, you know, the state of the art and the contemporary stories that are happening at that time. So I know we... I mentioned that we're, we weren't going to talk too much about the changes between the original and today. But briefly, just so we can get a sense of context for changing between or preparing between today and the future, about how many um, percentage-wise of the hanging exhibits are either new or changed or didn't exist or taken down? Just an overall change number. Do you have anything that you can approximate that? You know, just for our West End, it's 1,200 artifacts, and 55% of those are new to the museum. And so we made a conscious effort, what can we bring in new? We're kind of updating stories, especially we want to look at satellites, especially in that story of global communications. And so we made a, you know, a real effort to make sure that we were bringing in new objects that tell these important stories without losing the important stories we already had in the building. So when those today's new stories become yesterday's new stories and then you need to make room for more new stories like new things and other than panels is there a way to reconfigure anything or is that just you know the, how does that work yeah we have flexibility we may want to close an exhibition and do something new we have an innovations gallery in which we're going to have rotating exhibits they're going to be more contemporary in nature that give us that flexibility so we're balancing what we've always done very well these 20 30 year exhibits we're also adding that flexibility in a you know a rotating exhibit space with innovations but also kind of giving us the freedom of you know what maybe the scholars ready to close we'll do something different we'll do a different interpretation or we'll do something entirely new well, that's really exciting to think about that bringing my grandkids here or something, and that would be just some, a way to connect it all together. Is there anything that you want people to especially know about the future of the museum and um, anything else about the renovation that people should come see if they haven't been here in a while? Well, you know, the museum's going to feel very familiar, but very new as well. And what we're creating here by the end of the project in 2025 is to have an experience. And so once you walk into the door, there's going to be a visitor-friendly experience in terms of the open spaces as you get to make your way to an exhibition, but also what's in the exhibitions. And so you're going to see some old friends in new ways, like the Wright Flyer and the Columbia Command Module, but you're going to see some new friends as well, like 
you know, Jackie Cochran's T-38 Talon or the Sirius XM satellite in one more connected. Yeah, in fact, um, before the press conference, I was walking around and noticed several things that used to be at Udvarhazi are now here. So do you see that as a pipeline of potential, like maybe passing between the two museum locations to keep things fresh and up to date? Yeah, we look at our two locations, they, they're complementary to each other. That when you need something for, you know, a, you know, a an interpretive exhibit, you know, very you know, high level in terms of the themes and stories we're telling. That's for the mall building. And we have the big stuff, you know, especially at Hazy, and we see the, a go-between there. That we, we want to give ourselves the freedom of what can go in either space to tell those stories that we want to share with the public. And um, so the last question, um, we know at the Udvarhazi, in order to be there, there has to be something specific, unique, and special about the aircraft or the display item, the artifact. Is that true as well for here? Yes, we want to focus on artifacts that are iconic and tell the stories that we want to share with the public. And so that's the criteria for our rationale. And we're always, you know, evaluating that rationale in terms of what we collect and why we collect those things. But that's reflected in both spaces. Dr. Kenny, thank you very much for your time. I'm here with Beth Wilson from the educational staff at the museum and we want to talk a little bit about their educational programming and how the museum has changed and will continue to change to support education. Beth, welcome to the Airplane Geeks. Thank you very much for having us. You've asked a little bit, so I, I'm going to talk a little bit um, about our tiered program and, and how we're trying to reach uh, students of every age and uh, curiosity. So to begin with, with the, with the exhibits, um, we always try and find an avenue for every learner to come in. So you'll see that there are active learning labels that ask questions so that you can have a conversation about what you're looking at as a group. There are things you can touch uh, if you're a tactile person. There are things to see, to listen to. Uh, there are mechanical and computer interactives, and we have tried to be more inclusive. So when you're in Destination Moon, that you will re read a story or see the story of the, the mainly women who sewed the spacesuits uh, that the astronauts wore to work on, uh, to, to land on the moon. In the Wright brothers, it's primarily about the Wright brothers, but there's also a big section on their sister, Catherine, uh, who was very influential in their life. So we've tried to include uh, everybody in the stories that we're telling in the galleries, and we've tried to include all of these avenues to get people engaged. Uh, we're bringing back some old friends, uh, our Discovery Station program, which is hands-on activities uh, that explain larger concepts uh, at a, to, to every age. So they will be back up and running uh, every day except I think it's Wednesday and Thursday, they won't be up, uh, but double check the website. We are also bringing back story time for our youngest learners, uh, and there will be science demonstrations uh, on the weekends. So that's all coming back. Um, I host a television program uh, with a colleague, Marty Kelsey, uh, that is geared toward middle school students. It is called STEM in 30. And we do dives into interesting careers in the aviation industry. Uh, last week I was climbed up on the largest rotating uh, radial telescope in the world and learned a little bit about how they listen to those whispering parts of the universe. And so we try and package 
are educational programs uh, for every age. We also have a podcast, Airspace, which is great. Um, so that is our goal, is to reach everybody where they are. Where is the TV uh, program that you mentioned? Is that air just as a YouTube, or is it go you go to Smithsonian, or how do people know or subscribe or be part of it? And second half of that question is, is it interactive, or it's all just one way? You can find a subscribe to our YouTube channel. The National Air and Space Museum has a YouTube channel. You can find it there. You can also find it on our website, and that'll take you to the YouTube channel. We uh, do live chats, uh, and we, we've had some great guests. We had um, a group of scientists from NASA who were we're working on the DART mission that moved the asteroid. Those, when we have, when we schedule those live chats, uh, those are very interactive. You can post questions in the chat and we'll take those questions live. The STEM in 30 program, uh, we try to include hands-on activities for students that they can try in a classroom or on their own, but that is a recorded uh, broadcast. So uh, all kinds of directions we could go in. Um, if if teachers and classrooms wanted to do some interactive things that you're introducing in STEM in 30, is there uh, like are there resources they could get through the museum, or is it just get your stuff yourself, or how do they, how do you kind of bring them all together and hopefully culminate with a visit to the museum or something? Yes, go to our website. We have, we've reworked the website. There is a section for learners that has everything from our videos to lesson plans uh, to the learning lab section. Uh, and uh, we also have a program called, uh, it's the Teacher Innovative Institute. You can sign up for that. It's a two-year commitment. We bring you to the museum. We teach you how to work with a museum and then you take that all back to your classroom and then the next year we bring you back and then you teach the new crop of teachers. Wow, that sounds really cool. So that actually does bring up another question that I had is um, there are lots of classrooms here. How does someone go about taking advantage of these classrooms? Are they regularly scheduled or is it special programming or what's, how do you plan on using that? They, there will be programming specific for those classrooms and uh, I'm assuming that it's going to be the same sign up that we have had in the past that you contact the museum, you say we're interested in this program and then we schedule you uh, in a classroom for whatever activity. We do that here. We also do it at the Stephen F. Udvarhazy Center uh, where you just schedule a class and you come in and you and you take the class and then you tour the museum. Um, pre-pandemic, because we don't know what the numbers are going to be now, but pre-pandemic, were those classrooms hard to get or were they fairly available? It depends on when you sign up for them. Uh, they, we, they're always full. Uh, we always have classes in on the, <clears throat> excuse me, on the days that uh, we're scheduled. I don't know what sort of wait list we have, uh, but they, they are available and of course they're free, so they're very popular. Free is always good, especially in schools, <laughs> public schools in particular. That's, um, what, right now there's um, like a big push to really, as you started to mention earlier, um, the non-white male aspect of the history and the future and the accomplishments. Um, would you say that there was, uh, was it, it probably wasn't very hard to find all these examples, but was it hard to find artifacts or was it harder to find the, like, okay, this, we're not just telling you a story, this is really how it happened. It, it is more difficult, uh, mainly because, you know, those artifacts, like the sewing machine, <clears throat> 
in uh, Destination Moon, those sewing machines are still being used. We just happened to find one. So we really have to make that uh, effort to go out and to, to find these objects. And it's not easy because a lot of them have become family heirlooms. They've, they've kept them, uh, you know, in the case of aircraft, you know, they use them until they're, they're done. So it, but the museum has made a concerted effort to go out and to, we knew these stories. We know that they're out there. Now we've made a concerted effort to go out and find those artifacts. I know that um, in space history, uh, we there was a concerted effort once women were let into the astronaut corps to collect as much of that um, memorabilia and artifacts that we could, and now there's a concerted effort to uh, collect uh, from all sorts of different uh, ethnicities. Um, you know, anybody who's different, anyone who's not a white guy. You know, it's how do we tell those stories and and reaching out to those those astronauts and those people now when they are alive um, to get to get that into the collection which actually brings up another point about how um, you know when the museum first opened 30 something years ago 40 years ago uh, 40 yeah not 76 let's do public math you know so 40 20 30 46 years ago um, and uh, it was a museum. It was displays. It was kind of one way. You come, you read, you look, you leave. Yes. Um, and it didn't take long for the museum world and the Smithsonian in particular to realize that these have to be more educational. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that the museum started doing more educational things over the years, making space for classrooms, making space for more uh, opportunities for not just walking through. Um, now that the renovation is underway, because we know it's only a first phase that's now open right. and it's, we've got several more years worth of renovations, um, going forward, do you see that um, museums are going to be more like large living classrooms rather than just an artifact place? As, a, as an educator, yeah, that's always my hope. I will say that here at the National Air and Space Museum, um, in the 20 plus years I've been here, um, there has been a concerted effort to have a robust education department. And when we put together the teams that will be developing these galleries, uh, there is an educator or two on every team from the beginning. It's not, oh, we've developed this and we've written all this and now we'll bring in an educator and where can you fit your education? It, it is from the get-go. So especially here at Air and Space, that, that is a concerted effort um, and I, I don't foresee that not continuing. And so... Obviously, you're an employee, um, but we all know that museums frequently rely on the uh, altruism of volunteers, yes. and um, and a lot of our listeners are uh, looking to give back. They're looking um, to spend time. They're retired and they have a lot to say, a lot to offer. How can uh, people who would like to be volunteering at the museum in an educational capacity, how can they get involved if there is a way at all? There is. We, again, we have a very robust docent program that they are all volunteers and they come in and they, they do tours and guides. There, there are also other opportunities. You can uh, volunteer behind the scenes um, with, you know, curatorial department or the archives doing research uh, or translations. Um, 
closed captioning is a big thing right now. Uh, we run programs, you know, uh, on the weekends. We are always looking for volunteers there. I, I will direct you to, again, to our website and look under the volunteering section. And there, there's a variety of ways to, to do this. If you want to become a docent and commit to that, you know, you're here once a week for several years, or if you just want to come in on occasion when we're running programs or you want to run a discovery station, there's always opportunities. Is there anything like um, keeping a, a backlog Rolodex of whatever particular experts and say, look, I could talk about this. If you need someone to talk about that, I can come in and do that. Is that something that you do or is that really not how it works? That's not really how it works. Uh, the, most of the, the docents that go through training, you know, we have a lot of people who are retired from the aerospace industry and they learn it all. Uh, and But they do have their specific um let's say things that are close to their heart and those are the things that you'll get a little longer about on the tour um but again if you're behind the scenes tour and you really want to focus on world war one um there's a space for you understood so really becoming a docent is the pathway or a behind the scenes person any any of the volunteers will 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 put your talents to work. That's great. Is there anything you want us to know educational-wise about what your programs are or what you're doing or when do you start again? I know the museum opens next week, but is the educational also open next week and anything else going on that you want us to know about? Uh, sure. The the floor programming, again, our discovery stations, story time, science demos, they will start when the museum opens. Um, STEM in 30, please check us out. Uh, that's a great program that uh, runs all the time. You can find it online. Uh, and visit our website. We've really redone that website. There's a lot of information on there. I think it's better coordinated. Uh, and so take a look at that and look for any of the special um, programming that we'll be doing. Well, that's great. I'm really excited to see the rest of the museum that's already open that I haven't seen yet. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are going to be coming through here pretty quickly because they're very much anticipating the reopening. So, Beth, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And please come visit us. We'll be back. Okay, thanks. Good meeting you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. And thanks to Hillel Glazier, as well as Chris Brown, the National Air and Space Museum's director, Dr. Jeremy Kinner, the chief curator, and educator Beth Wilson. You can find more information about each of them in the show notes at airplanegeeks.com. And, of course, you can find the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum at airandspace.si.edu. Find us at airplanegeeks.com. As always, we have a shortcut link that takes you directly to the show notes for this episode, and that's airplanegeeks.com slash 724. And you can always reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.